Trinity Dallas. We pray that this message will be a source of encouragement and hope in your life today. Enjoy today's message. High five your neighbors. I'm so glad to be sitting next to you. And if I could actually grab a stool as well, that would be awesome. Anyone here tonight that wasn't able to make it last night? A few of you, oh great, a bunch of you guys, awesome. So good to have you guys here. Um, <laughs> well, if we've uh, not met before, my name is Jake, and uh, I come from uh, Los Angeles. My wife and I pastor a church there uh, in the same family as your church, C3LA. And uh, this is my third time uh, at Presence Conference, and I just love coming back every single year. It really is such a joy uh, to, to be together with all of you. Last night, uh, I preached a part one of what I'm uh, calling a, a two-part message. Last night was, uh, let's do a little pop quiz. What was last night's message called? Yeah, when the king comes close. Yeah, it was, it was a good, it was like 60%, right, from some of the answers I heard. So it's, it's okay, yeah. Um, and I wanna keep pressing into uh, that theme from just a, different angle tonight. If you have your Bible, why don't you come into the book of Revelation? How many know when the pastor says turn to the book of Revelation, it's going to be an exciting message? Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to pick it up in verse 19. I'm just going to warn you, the passage is going to start on a real high note, okay? So verse 19, if you found Revelation chapter 3 and verse 19, say I found it. If you need more time, say any more time. No, you, none of you do because it's on the screen behind me, isn't it? Yeah. That's good. <laughs> Revelation chapter three and verse 19 says, those whom I love. Okay, it's starting pretty good. I like that. I rebuke <laughs> and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. So this is Jesus speaking here. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's the conclusion of Revelation chapter three. And then it continues in Revelation chapter four and verse one. The apostle John says, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, which is the voice of Jesus, said, come up here. Come up here. Here, A lot of Christians think that this verse has something to do uh, with what they call the rapture. It has nothing to do with the rapture, I'm sorry to tell you, but we'll unpack what it is that it says to us. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. That, that phrase, after this, in the book of Revelation is in reference to the victorious resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. Everything that we read about in the book of Revelation is predicated upon the fact that Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the grave and now has ascended to the right hand of the Father 
in, in heaven. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Last night was called when the king comes close. Tonight is called will the church come up. Like a large portion of the New Testament, the book of Revelation is a letter, just like Galatians is a letter or Corinthians is a letter. So also Revelation is a letter and it's addressed to a specific group of Christians in the first century church. What's unique about Revelation though is that rather than being addressed to a church in a city, uh, this this body of writing is addressed to seven churches across seven different locations in the region of Asia in the first century. So John is writing to these seven churches. And while John has specific things to say to each of these seven churches, it's also the case that because seven, the number seven, is the biblical number of completion or whole, therefore the seven churches actually represent the whole church. They represent the global, the universal church. So this letter then, though it's addressed to these seven churches, is actually addressed to the whole church, then and now, there and here, every time and everywhere throughout this age until Christ returns. Revelation chapter 1 introduces the letter as a revelation directly from Christ to his church, and it shows us this really compelling picture of the resurrected and glorified Christ walking amongst seven golden lampstands. Everyone say lampstands. Yeah, and we find out, Jesus interprets the metaphor for us. He tells us the seven lampstands are the seven churches. They're symbolic of the seven churches that Jesus is about to address through John. Then in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus specifically addresses each of the seven churches with a prophetic message given to John. Two of the seven churches are commended as doing really well. Two are doing very poorly, and they face Christ's judgment if they do not repent. And the remaining three are somewhere in the middle. They've got some bright spots as churches, but they've also got some areas of compromise that they're dealing with. And each of the messages to the seven churches ends with the same phrase. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the, not just that church, but to the churches. Letting us know again that each message to these seven churches contains universal encouragement and universal correction for the church throughout the age. Now, this breakdown of the seven churches, that two are doing quite well, two are doing quite poorly, and three are somewhere in the middle, probably still holds true today in terms of what we would find if we were to take a measuring stick and assess uh, the church around the world. Some are healthy, others are mixed, and some of them, though they have buildings and services and programs, have actually essentially ceased to be a church at all. And this is a tension, because that's not the way that the church is meant to be. The church is not supposed to be sort of limping along, a bit of compromise here, some lukewarmness there, falling away from her first love, tolerating just some demonic doctrines. That's not who the church is supposed to be at all. The church is supposed to be pure. The church is the body and the bride of Christ and is meant to be his faithful witness to the world. I mean, I love this uh, verse in Revelation chapter one. 
Verses five and six, to him who loves us, that's to Jesus, to Jesus who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. That's the church, freed from her sin and freed to be a priestly kingdom serving our Father and our Creator. And yet often our conduct and our behavior does not reflect this reality. We could even consider the same breakdown of the seven churches on an individual level in the same way that the global church falls along similar lines as the seven churches of Revelation, so also do many church memberships fall along those same lines. Some bright spots for sure, some really devoted people like those who turn up on a Tuesday night in the rain. But in some ways there are also feet which are dragging and hands that are drooping, passion that is flagging, and love that has grown cold. And yet even in this state, Christ stands with his hands open to us, even to the ones who have drifted completely to the seventh and the worst church, the Laodiceans, the one whom Jesus called lukewarm and threatened to spit out of his mouth. Even to them, he says, repent, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. Open up the door. That's his gracious, gracious invitation. And here's what I love about where we pick up the text tonight in, in Revelation chapter four and verse one. I don't know if you caught the image. The reason I started in verse 19 of chapter three is because I wanted you to see Christ's invitation for them to open up their door and then not so coincidentally, Revelation chapter four brings us into the picture of Jesus opening up his door. Christ opening up his door, a door that brings John and brings us into a heavenly scene that is then described throughout Revelation chapter four and five. And as soon as John finishes addressing that seven church, we read the words. Put it back up for me, guys. Revelation chapter four and verse one. There before me was a door standing open in heaven. And I heard the voice of Jesus saying, come up here and I will show you what must take place. So the first thing John sees is this heavenly door in his vision. His whole revelatory vision begins in chapter four, and the first thing he sees is an open door. And there's an invitation for him to come up and to enter through that door. And once he does, we're brought into this, what really can only be described as a scene of worship. First of God in chapter four, and then of Christ in chapter five. And the fact that this heavenly worship is the first thing that John sees in his vision is very significant because remember, he's just finished addressing the seven churches and by extension, the church universal. Therefore, the worship that John sees in Revelation 4 and 5 is meant to be a prophetic message for the whole church that this is the pattern that must be reflected in the church. They are to expect the presence of God to remain in their midst and to empower them in their mission. Tonight I want to talk to you about being a spirit-empowered church. Now we know, what, we know that this is what Revelation 4 is, and 5 is communicating to us because of the imagery that's employed here in this vision and also earlier in the book of Revelation. You remember back in chapter 1, Jesus shows John a picture of seven golden lampstands. What do the lampstands represent? What do they symbolize? The church, yeah, the lampstands, they symbolize a representative of the seven churches. 
Now, the lampstand is a biblical reference to the tabernacle of Moses all the way back in the Old Testament. One of the features of the tabernacle was this lampstand that was always to remain lit in the tabernacle. And the lampstand symbolized uh, the light of God and by extension Israel as a light to the nations. And the priests were always to supply this lampstand with fresh oil so that the light of God's people would never go out. Over in the New Testament, the lampstand finds its fulfillment in both Christ and the church, both of whom are referred to as being the light of the, yeah, the light of the world. The fact that the first of the seven churches, the church in Ephesus, is accused by Christ of having forsaken its first love of witness to the world and faces the potential of having its lampstand taken away as a result of forsaking their witness, again, speaks to us of the purpose of the church of being a lampstand, of being a light to the world. And so that's the first image that we see in Revelation chapter one, that the church is a lampstand that's meant to be a light unto the world. The second image that we see is back up in Revelation chapter four during the vision of heavenly worship. Look at uh, Revelation chapter four and verse five with me. It says, from the throne comes flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps, or seven flames, were blazing. These are, again, it interprets the, the metaphor for you, these are the seven spirits of God. Now, again, seven being a symbolic number, symbolizing wholeness and completion. This is not actually talking about seven individual spirits before the throne of, before the throne of God, but the seven spirits symbolizes the holy Spirit of God before the throne of the Father. And here, the Holy Spirit is, is depicted as what? As seven blazing lamps. So in the first chapter, we have seven lampstands of the church, and then in chapter four, we've got seven lamps or flames of the Spirit. And the idea here is that the lamp of the Spirit is meant to rest upon the lampstand of the church so that the church's mission and witness is empowered by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. You with me? Yeah. This, this picture of spiritual power to build God's house as a light to the world connects back to another place in the Old Testament, in the prophetic book of Zechariah. At that point in Israel's history, they just come back from Babylonian exile and they're rebuilding the temple, the house of God, back in Jerusalem. And that project of rebuilding God's house was overseen by both Zerubbabel, the king, and Joshua, the priest. Now, what are we referred to in the book of Revelation? A kingdom of Priests, a kingdom of priests. So here, they're rebuilding the house of God in Jerusalem, and it's overseen by a king and a priest. So this connects to us symbolically. And then in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, uh, the prophet says, Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up, like someone awakened from sleep. And he asked me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a solid golden with a bowl at the top and seven on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and another on its left. And I asked the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You see, the message of the angel to the prophet was that the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of God's people as a light unto the nations would happen only one way. Not by human might, not by human strength, but by the Spirit of the Almighty God because He is the flame that is set upon the lampstand of God's people. Now, the fulfillment of this is that the church, which is the temple of God in the earth, 
can only be built by the Holy Spirit empowering a kingdom, Zerubbabel, of priests, Joshua. And this is why Zechariah also sees the olive trees next to the lampstand because in order for the flame of the Spirit to rest upon the lampstand of the church, there is a need for regular fresh oil from the pressing of olives. And this is the oil that the church must constantly be seeking to retrieve if we are to be a lampstand that burns with the flame of the Holy Spirit and be empowered in our mission to be a light unto the nations here in Dallas, Texas. You with me? Coming back to Revelation 4 and 5, then we see that Jesus' message to the church with the vision of heavenly worship is very clear. This is what it looks like here in these two chapters. This is what it looks like to be the kind of church that the Spirit of God will and wants to rest upon in order to empower. So I, I love this. It, the reason Jesus invites John to come up into this scene of heavenly worship is for the sake of showing us what kind of church we must be in order for God to come down. When I reflected uh, upon this, it made me think of another passage of scripture in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 24, the Israelites are in the wilderness. They've just been set free from their oppression in the same way that you and I have been set free from the oppression of sin. And now they're wandering in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And they stop at Mount Sinai where they receive God's law. And in Exodus 24, beginning in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for there, that is the Israelites' instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aid, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. It's no coincidence that as we read before, when John does come up in Revelation, he's met with lightning and peals of thunder. Elsewhere, when the book of Exodus describes God's presence coming down on Mount Sinai, it's characterized by lightning and peals of thunder because these two scenes corroborate with one another. It's letting us know a similar picture and there's actually the exact same purpose that God had for Moses as he had for John because when Moses goes up Mount Sinai to meet with God, he spends 40 days and nights with him there to receive all of God's commandments for Israel. But you know the first thing that God instructs Moses about? How to build the tabernacle. The place where God's presence is going to dwell in the midst of God's people. So God invites Moses to come up so that he may instruct him in how to build something that will allow God to come down. There's a theme here that God is showing us through the scriptures. He's inviting us to come up so that we can see the pattern according to which we must build in order for God to come down. This is the lampstand. I'm calling you to be so that the flame of my spirit can rest upon you like at Pentecost and empower your witness to the world around you, both with message and miracles, with biblical proclamation and also with power. Friends, we are not called to lean upon programs and personalities and systems as good as those things can be. The words of God to Zechariah are just as true today as they were then. 
the mission of the church will be fulfilled not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The church is a lampstand and was fashioned for this purpose that the fire of God would rest upon her and empower her to shine like a light amongst the darkness of the world. What is absolutely vital then is that you and I would constantly retrieve fresh oil so that the Spirit rests upon and empowers us. And this is the point of heavenly worship in Revelation 4 and 5. In the same way that Israel was to build the tabernacle according to the heavenly pattern shown to Moses on Mount Sinai, so you and I are also meant to build according to the heavenly pattern shown to John in Revelation 4 and 5. God will not come down to inhabit a space that has not been constructed with his presence in mind. So what do we see in this vision of heavenly worship? It's four things that I see in Revelation chapters four and five that I believe are absolutely essential for us retrieving oil so that we can be a lampstand that burns with the lamp of the Holy Spirit. The first one is this, that we must be a church of disciples. Revelation chapter four, beginning in verse two, at once I was in the spirit. So now John has entered through the door and at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven was someone sitting on that throne, that someone is the father. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Now almost everything in the book of Revelation is symbolic and and not literal. The, the precious stones are symbolic of God's glory and God's majesty as seen in the precious stones in the Garden of Eden. The rainbow represents God's mercy as seen in God's dealing with Noah and the, the renewal of the world through the flood. So both of these elements together, speaking of the garden and the renewal after the flood, they speak to us of new creation. New creation that will come down to the earth at Christ's return, a new creation that already now is in one sense in heaven. Now, the point of this is that the church is to live according to this new creation reality to which she already belongs. We are to set our mind on heavenly things. In other words, we're to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Before you are anything else, you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Before you are a mom or a dad or before you are a Democrat or a Republican or before you are black or white or Asian or any other ethnicity, before you are anything, you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. That is our first identity, that we are sons and daughters of God. We are to live according to that new creation as one new people of God where every dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. We have been made new in the new man, the resurrected man, the firstborn from the dead, Jesus Christ. We are to live in that new creation and the new creation is predicated upon one thing. It's predicated upon the fact that God is on the throne. So our experience of new creation life therefore means that it only comes on the, on the heels of submission to God's rule, God's reign. You see, the kind of church that produces the oil for the lamp of the Spirit to burn upon is the church that is dedicated to discipleship. Not just dedicated to good feelings on a Sunday because of a great worship set. 
Not dedicated to just feeling encouraged because the Sunday morning message encouraged me and spoke to me the way that I wanted to be spoken to, but dedicated to being disciples of Jesus. Being a disciple means being submitted to the reign of Christ in our lives and embracing the obedience of faith, loving his lordship as much as we love his saving power. We are to be a people who pursue the reality of Christ formed in us. Paul says, I labor until Christ is formed in you. To be a people who behold Jesus until we are formed into his image from one degree of glory to another. This means that all of our devotion goes to Christ. We are to forsake whatever is not pleasing to him and pursue him. So for those of you who came forward tonight and stood on this altar because you recognize you've got some bondage in your life that is not pleasing to the Lord or serving your relationship with him, I applaud and commend you because we are all to be a people who leave and, and forsake the things that do not support and serve our relationship with Jesus and our devotion to his will being done in our lives. In 2 Timothy chapter two, it says, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood, clay, and some are for special, purpose, special purposes, excuse me, and some for common use. But those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy and useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. It's that cleansing of ourselves that Christ calls us to to live lives of disciples. The Spirit rests upon those who live in the pursuit of that devotion, that devotion and that submission to His will. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Does He own your life? Are you committed to becoming more like Him? Or are the plans of the church and the community to which you belong to help you along in that endeavor more like speed bumps and obstacles to your own plans and agendas? Is the pastoral care conversation that's coming for you in two weeks' time because they need to address a blind spot in your life that you just don't see, is that a nuisance or is that the grace and the mercy of God helping you to become more like Christ? We retrieve the oil by being a church of disciples. The second way that we retrieve the oil is by being a church of worshipers. Continuing on in Revelation chapter four, now picking it up in verse four, it says surrounding the throne where the Father is, there were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white. They had crowns of gold on their heads. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now the sea in the Bible is typically depicted as being chaotic. It's, it's, it's a symbol for, for chaos and for evil. But here in the new creation, it's clear as glass and it's, it's, it's still. Me meaning that Jesus has conquered evil. He's conquered chaos and it's now under his reign. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures has six wings that were covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. And day and night, both the creatures and the elders, what do they do? They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and they have their being. The four living creatures are uh, symbolic, I believe, of general creation of the cosmos. The 24 elders are symbolic of the church. So you have both special creation, the church, and the general creation, the cosmos. And all of creation bows down and worships God our Father. That is the one thing that is abundantly clear about their activity in Revelation chapters four and five. They worship God and they worship the Lamb of God. How do they worship? They worship with their words, confessing his worthiness by bowing before his throne, by casting their golden crowns and by lifting their voices in song. Friends, the kind of church that the Spirit will rest upon is a worshiping church, a church who does not treat a corporate worship as just the preview before the movies, but who anticipates and looks forward to the time of song together where we worship and adore God and the Lamb and give Him the praise that He is due. It's the church that worships with the words they confess about God. The church that worships with the physical posture of their bodies. They kneel. Friends, evidently expressive worship is biblical worship. I don't know how else to say it when the Bible commands me to lift up my hands and to lift up my voice and even to dance undignified before the Lord. I can only take that to mean that to express myself passionately before the Lord is the biblical prescription for how to properly worship Him. To come with genuine enthusiasm and, and thanksgiving. To look like a fool for the sake of making much of Jesus. They worship with their resources and their claims to honor. They take their golden crowns and they throw them on the floor for the throne of God. How often? Every time the creatures make much of God, the elders just take off their, I guess they're just constantly taking their crowns off and throwing them on the ground. And maybe every time they take one off and throw them on the ground, another one appears and they just take it off again. Because apparently they never stop saying holy, holy, which means they never stop casting their crowns. How often do I need to give? How often do I need to sow? How often do I need to take my resources, my wealth, my, my honor, the things that, that I think make me look impressive to the world and give them over to the Lord? I don't know. Never stop. Right. Very good. And a worshiping person, a worshiping church is the kind of church that produces the oil for the flame of the Holy Spirit to rest upon. Is it any coincidence that every time there was a move of God in ancient Israel, there was a generous giving of offering? It's the biblical pattern. If we are a worshiping church, we'll be a church where God loves to be. I don't much care for being, let me be careful. I don't mind being seeker aware. I don't much care for being seeker sensitive. I wanna be God sensitive. I wanna build a church where God loves to be and I just have this sneaking suspicion that if I can build a church where God loves to be, I think people will love to be there as well because when people show up to church, they didn't come just to hear a good message, they came to encounter the living God. So I wanna produce a church where God loves to be present so that people can encounter the present God. And in our worship, the Spirit is poured out. I love what Father David talked about yesterday in the communion hour service where he says that when the serv service concludes, we don't leave, we're sent. 
With what are we sent? If it's not the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, then we're sent powerless. But if we come together as a worshiping church and the Spirit of God rests upon us, then we are sent out empowered into the world to be the third kind of church that attracts the Spirit of God is to be a church of good news. For the sake of time, I won't read Revelation chapter five, verses one to 10, but the next thing John sees in this vision is the father on the throne holding a scroll. And the scroll contains God's judgments for the world. And the angel asks, is anybody worthy? We just sung that a moment ago. Is anybody able to, to, to break open the, the seal of the scroll and, and read from that scroll and nobody is found worthy? And John says, I began to weep because nobody was found worthy. The, the reason it's, it, it's such a sad moment is because being able to read from the, the scroll God's judgments, it communicates to us the, the reality for which humanity was made, was to share in God's reign over creation and nobody's worthy to share in God's reign over creation because we are all subject to the judgments in the scroll because we're all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But then the angel says, don't weep. Here comes the lion, the lamb the one standing as though slain, and the lamb opens the scroll. And it says that when he opened the scroll, the creatures and the elders, they broke out into a new song. Basically, the praise and the worship went to a whole other level when the gospel entered the environment. You and I are to be a good news-centered church. The kind of church that the Spirit comes upon is the church that revels in the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the arrival of God's kingdom through Jesus. Jesus came empowered by the Holy Spirit proclaiming, hey, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand. And just as the Spirit empowered Jesus to inaugurate the kingdom, so now the Spirit empowers the church to advance the kingdom. And the message of the kingdom is very simple. It's the king. King Jesus is the message of the kingdom. And so we proclaim his beauty, his majesty, his power, his goodness. We, Paul says it like this in Colossians, him we proclaim. We preach the living person, the King, Jesus Christ. He is our message. And when we proclaim the good news of Jesus, that attracts the Spirit of God to empower the church in her mission. We do not preach legalism. We're not here to produce Christianity down to a set of rules to get people to prescribe to so that they can do better in life. We don't preach moralism. I don't make up my own kind of system of self-righteousness and say, hey, if you do it this way, you'll do well. That's not what we preach. We preach the person of Jesus. I don't try to change you from the outside in. I preach Jesus gets you to welcome him to your life and then he transforms you from the inside out. The Spirit of God will not empower a church who glorify themselves or who glorify a man or a woman on a platform. The Spirit of God rests upon the church whose eyes are fixed on Christ, who sings the praises of Jesus as the only hope of humanity. He doesn't fall upon those who boast of their own strength. He falls upon those who revel in their weakness as the opportunity for Christ to be shown strong. On the same token, the Spirit falls upon 
those who are committed to the lifestyle of the gospel, what we might call the cruciform life, the way of the cross. John sees a slain and standing lamb. What a picture, what a paradox. We are slain and standing in Christ. This doesn't just speak of our salvation, it speaks of our lifestyle, following in the footsteps of Jesus. We are to be living sacrifices and our living sacrifice is a pleasing aroma to God. And it's a church upon whom the power of the Spirit will descend. A lot of times I find in our Western context, we understand words like, when I am weak, then I am strong, as, as being like a, a biblical version of what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Like if I can get to the other side of this trial, if I can get to the other side of this moment of weakness, then I'll be strong. That's not what it says. It doesn't say after I'm weak, then I'll be strong. It doesn't say after I get through this, then I'll have a testimony. No, no, it says when. When I am weak, then I am strong. So it's in the very moments where you don't feel like you have anything to give or you don't have what it takes or you feel weakened in your body or you feel weakened in your mind or weakened in whatever way it is that you feel. Those are the moments that, that you can attract and invite the Spirit of God to rest upon you in power so that truly Christ is glorified, so that Christ gets the praise and the honor because it wasn't my strength. It was His strength. It's in the times when you don't feel like it when you don't feel like you have what it takes to be the light at your workplace or in your family or in your small group or on your team, around the dinner table, in that meeting, those are the moments when I am weak, then I am strong. The Spirit of God, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So in your weakness, in your confessed weakness, you position yourself in humility and the power of God comes upon us as a church and mobilizes and empowers us in our mission. What great miracles await you? Earlier this year, I was dealing with some emotional and psychological difficulty, I guess you could say, from some criticism that I had received that for some reason just really, really shook me. And it stuck with me for months. And I remember one particular occasion on one of our Wednesday night gatherings during worship, just feeling so weak and just telling the Lord, I don't think I have what it takes to get up there and minister. And the Lord reminded me, when you are weak, then you are strong. I got up to minister and proclaim the word of God that night, just feeling so weak. And I just sensed the Lord lead me into a, a moment of doing a healing altar call. And there was a young girl who was there that night who had just moved from another state to Los Angeles because she had found our church on Instagram. And I didn't know this girl, but I gave the, the call for healing and she had had a uh, profound pain in her back for as long as she could remember. And on that night, she got healed. And her testimony became such a great source of encouragement in our church and she's still healed to this day, has complete uh, mobility and is pain-free in her back. If I had talked myself out of ministering because I felt weak, then God's power would not have been shown strong. You understand? The gospel-centric church, the Christ-dependent church is where the Spirit loves to dwell. The fourth and final church that 
we're invited to be in this vision in Revelation 4 and 5 in order for us to retrieve oil for this lamp of the Spirit to burn upon us is to be a church of intercessors. Worship team, why don't you guys come and join me? In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, it says, when he, that is the Lamb of God, had taken it, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So these golden bowls full of incense carried by these elders are symbolic of the prayers of the church. I mean, how precious must prayer be to God if he depicts it as every single one of our prayers contained in a golden bowl in heaven. He collects your prayers. He collects the prayers of the church. I mean, what an amazing image of how precious and valuable our prayers are to the Lord that he collects them in that way. And here these prayers are shown as coming before the throne of God and before the, the Lamb. And these prayers of the saints, they call for both the judgment upon the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous. And believe it or not, it's these prayers that usher in the rest of the book of Revelation. Each judgment upon the wicked and each vindication of the righteous being a response to the prayers of the church. That's how powerful prayer is. The kind of church the Spirit comes upon is the praying church. The church who gives themselves to corporate prayer, listen to me, please, as a primary ministry. That we would take up our vocation of being a praying people. Not just praying persons, praying individuals, but a praying and prayerful people who give ourselves to corporate prayer because we understand that that is one of our primary ministries as the church. Prayer is such a unique thing in the sense that it's both how we come up to God and how God comes down to us. Prayer is what God responds to with his power. Prayer is the power of the church because it's how she leans upon the Lord for all kinds of support and strength. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, there's nothing that seems weaker on the surface more than prayer. Getting in a room and just talking out loud, what could appear more weak than prayer? And yet, it is the thing, the vehicle that God has designated to be the greatest strength of his people, to be prayerful. The prayerful church is the church that creates the atmosphere that God loves to inhabit. Going back to Moses' time on Mount Sinai, how long was he there for? He was there for 40 days. Now, have you read Leviticus? Have, have you read Numbers? Have you, have you read the Pentateuch? You could read those laws in a couple hours. Moses was there for 40 days. Why did God take so long, God? The only thing that I can gather is that prayer is just as much about the fellowship as it is about the outcome. That you and I are to be a people who embrace fellowship with God through the gift of prayer. And on the other side of that fellowship is also partnership. 
seeing the things that we long for come to pass. Friends, it does not matter how often we preach about salvation. It does not matter how much we proclaim that God is a healer. It does not matter how often we preach about miracles. If we do not pray, we will not see salvation, healings, and miracles at the kind of level that we ought to. We'll always be incredibly limited unless we embrace the vocation and the ministry of prayer that God calls us to. The praying church is the kind of church that God will bless. He moves upon us and through us, not because of our programs, but because of our prayer. Prayer, therefore, is our greatest threat against the enemy. Prayer is our greatest weapon. You wanna talk about not by might, not by power, but by my spirit? It better be by prayer. If it doesn't involve prayer, then friends, I can almost promise you it's by our might and by our power. If we do not give ourselves to prayer, I can almost promise you we've fallen back upon our own strength. But in prayer, we access the strength of God to slay every giant. Prayer is our only hope of bearing fruit that lasts. Prayer is the difference between a city lost and a city won. Prayer is the deciding factor between a generation in spiritual decline and a generation in spiritual revival. When Jesus spoke of God's house, he did not call it a house of preaching. He didn't even call it a house of singing as much as I love to sing. He called it a house of prayer. But when the church was born in Acts chapter 2, the 120 were not in the upper room doing a devotional. They weren't having a service where Peter was preaching to the 120. They weren't even out in the community serving as great as all those things are. First, they were praying. And then the Holy Spirit was poured out because the praying church is the church that invites the lamp of the Spirit to burn upon her. When Peter and John were threatened by the Sanhedrin, they went back to gather with other believers and they prayed. When God called Ananias to send him to Saul of Tarsus to go and lay hands on him, Ananias hesitated in fear because Saul is a persecutor of the church and God says, Ananias, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Why? Behold, he prays. Almost as though prayer is the key marker of someone who is devoted to the Lord. The distinguishing factor in our life that says, I want to be a lampstand upon which the flame of the Spirit can burn. Prayer is what precedes revival. Every great move of God is birthed and sustained because they pray. When the call goes out for prayer, do we see it as something to try to get around? Something to hit our snooze button and sleep through? Or do we revel in the opportunity to be a praying people? The prayer meeting ought to be the highest attended meeting in the church because the success of every other ministry depends on the success of the prayer ministry. Otherwise, we work in our own strength and our own power. But I wanna work by His Spirit. I wanna be a lampstand. I want Trinity Dallas to be a lampstand upon which the flame of the Spirit can burn. And that means being a church of disciples, a church of worshipers, a church of good news. The gospel is our message. We're not here just to espouse values and principles, friends. We're here to proclaim the gospel and a church of intercessors. Let's stand to our feet.
It's 845. If you've got children in the kids' ministry, now's a great time just to quietly excuse yourself and go and grab them. Feel free to bring them back in here if you'd like. We close our eyes for a moment. Let's go up into that heavenly vision in our minds. Let's hear the song of the elders and angels as they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They're, they're doing it right now. They're making much of the triune God. And this is a pattern according to which we are to build. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray tonight, help us to, help us to leave behind good ideas in order that we may embrace your ideas. Help us to come up so that we can build the kind of church into which you love to come down. We want to be a spirit-empowered church. Thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to dive deeper into today's message, go to trinitydallas.com forward slash sermons to receive your copy of the notes. If today's message encouraged you, do someone else a favor and share it with them. Also be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. A special shout out to all those who partner with us through their giving. Your contributions have enabled us to touch the lives of people in our community, as well as around the globe. Visit us at trinitydallas.com forward slash give to partner with what God is doing through Trinity Dallas. God bless.